but specifically in the congregation because I want people to hear. Amen. All right. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter number two. Colossians chapter number two. For the last couple weeks now, we've been uh, going through the uh, New Testament book of Colossians. And this, this book is a very interesting book for several reasons. We've looked at a couple of them, one of which is Paul is writing this letter uh, from prison. This is one of his prison epistles. He was arrested many times throughout his life for uh, preaching the gospel and refusing to stop. And so this is one of the times he's in jail. But he's also writing to the group at Colossae, and he had never been there. He's never met these people. So he is writing from prison to a group of believers that he has never met and does not know. And what he is really trying to get across to the church is the fact that Christ is supposed to be a, a, at the preeminent spot in our life. Now, the word preeminent is used one time in Scripture, and it's in the book of Colossians, and it means in first place, greater than all. And we as believers, we hear that Jesus is preeminent, and we think, well, of course he is. Uh, but the problem that we deal with and that the Colossian church deals with is we, we don't tend to put Christ in a place of preeminence. We tend to put him in a place of prominence. And there's a difference. Prominence means, well, it's important to me, but there's other things I got to deal with. Preeminent means it's the most important thing. And no matter what else I deal with, no matter what's going on in my life, this is what I have to deal with. This is the most preeminent, most important thing in my life. And one of the reasons that the church was struggling putting Christ in his proper place is because they were being, uh, they were allowing the culture of Colossae, specifically the religious culture, to warp their view of God. The, the religious culture in Colossae was kind of a buffet style to religion. Uh, there was under rule, and so there was freedom of religion, but you could not say that your God the only God because you could offend someone. And also, if your God was the only God, then you may think that your God needs to be in charge and Rome is the only person, the only group that's allowed to be in charge. And so you could serve any God you wanted to serve. You could worship any God you wanted to worship. You just could not say your God was the only God. And so what people at Colossae would do is they would kind of pick a buffet style to their religion. They would go to this religion and take this belief or this ritual or this rite or this benefit they thought that religion had, and they would kind of cobble together their own religion. And the church at Colossae was doing the same thing. They never said that Christ was not enough. They never said that Christ wasn't important. They never stopped worshiping Jesus. They believed you had to worship Christ. You had to put your faith and trust in him for salvation. He was the only way of salvation, but you could pick and choose these other things to fill in what they thought were the gaps of what Jesus provided for. Jesus gave eternal security. Jesus gave salvation. But this God over here gives me uh, prosperity. This God over here gives me security. This God over here gives me fertility. This God over here gives... So they would have a Jesus and type of mentality. Jesus was important. He was necessary. But they chose other gods and other rituals to kind of fill in what they lacked. They, they didn't get rid of Jesus. In fact, in chapter number two, Jesus says that the, uh, Paul says that their faith in Jesus was steadfast, but they just thought they needed to add other beliefs, other practices, other rituals to their faith in Christ. That was one issue. Another issue was a large population of the church were converted Jews. 
and they believed you had to accept Christ as your Savior and obey their Jewish laws and traditions and calendars and things like that. So if you were a Gentile who got saved, you accepted Christ as your Savior, but then you had to obey all the Jewish laws. So you had to get circumcised, you had to have the dietary laws, the, the laws of, of clothing, and all the things that the Jews had to abide by, you had to abide by as well. So it was a Jesus and type of religion. And of course, the Gentiles, they uh, thought that it was salvation through faith and these other pagan rituals. You needed Jesus and the laws, or you needed Jesus and these other beliefs and rituals. And so Paul, he answers this question, uh, answers this problem by telling them that Jesus is all they need. They don't need Jesus and anything. Jesus is enough. Jesus is preeminent. It's not Jesus and anything. It's not Jesus and church attendance. It's not Jesus and church membership. It's not Jesus and tithes and offerings. It's Jesus only. He is telling them Jesus is all you need. Everything was created by Christ and everything was created for Christ. In Christ, we possess the fullness of God. Christ showed the ultimate love when he became flesh and dwelt among us. He showed the ultimate love when he, when he gave his life on the cross for our when he allowed God the Father to place our sins on him and he took the full God for all of the world's sins, he showed the ultimate love. He conquered the ultimate enemy when he rose from the dead three days later and now he sits in the ultimate place of authority and power. So when you have Christ, you have everything you need. When you have Jesus, you have it all. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he unpacks this truth a little further in Colossians chapter 2. And so that's where we're going to start reading this morning. So look at Colossians chapter 2, starting verse number 8. The Bible says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, Paul uses several words in this verse, but they all basically mean the same thing. He uses philosophy, vain deceit, tradition of men, rudiments of the world. They're all human ways or fleshly ways or worldly ways to obtain power and security and stability and sometimes salvation. Keep reading verse number 9. <clears throat> he says, For in him, that's in Jesus dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So what Paul's saying here is, look, too many people are trusting the, the worldly means of security and stability and salvation and authority. And when you have the fullness of God, when the fullness of the Godhead dwells inside of you through salvation and the Holy Spirit indwelling, when you have the fullness of God, what else could you possibly need? What could you be lacking? What spiritual blessing do you need that God's not giving you? And then he, uh, he addresses those who trusted in their Jewish traditions as well as those who look to pagan Practices. Look in verse number 16. It says, let no man, let no man therefore, 
judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body of, but the body is of Christ. So he's talking to the Jewish people here now. He goes, look, don't let someone say that you're not a good enough Christian or you're not truly saved because you're not obeying these, these rituals or these Sabbath days or these dietary restrictions because those were just a shadow of what's to come. And you no longer have to worry about that because that was showing you what you needed and now you have what you need because you have Christ. Look at verse 18. Let no, be, no, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So now he's talking to those who, who believe in pagan practices, worshiping angels or, or giving offerings to these different gods and these different deities. And then he, he really drives home the point down in verse 20. So look at verse number 20. He says, Wherefore... If ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to the ordinances? So here's what he's saying. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, you died. You became a new creature. That's why Paul says later, old things are passed away. That word passed away doesn't mean we just forget about them. It means those old things have been killed. The things you were trusting in, the things you were relying on, the things you had faith in, the things that you found security in, the things you found stability in, the things you found joy in, the things you found fulfillment in, they are dead, and now you are a new creature, and you find all those things in Christ. Everything you sought for before, you now found in Jesus. So what he's saying is if you are dead to the ways of the world. If you are dead to the way the world finds security and stability and power, then why do you live like you still belong to the world? If Christ has freed you, then live free. Don't be subject to these things. Don't be controlled by these things. Don't find your, your stability in these things. Then he gives his conclusion in verse number, chapter number 3, in verse number 1. He says, if ye, then be, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the ultimate place of authority and power. What Paul is saying is... Because we serve the risen Savior, because we serve the God who created everything and everything's created for Him, because we are now dead to the world and dead to the things we trusted in and dead to the things we served, because we are now alive in Christ and He sits at the ultimate place of power, why do we still seek our help and our security and our stability from all those things He killed? Why are we still looking for joy in all those things? He said, you're dead to them, and now you're supposed to live in Christ. Look at verse number two. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Again, he goes, don't be looking for 
your pleasure and your joy and your effect. Don't, 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 don't be worrying about the stuff down here. Because you're dead. Dead people don't care about what's going on on earth. How many of y'all have a loved one who's in heaven? How many of y'all think that loved one in heaven cares what's going on down here? They don't. You know why? Because they're in heaven. They don't care. You know, I've heard people say, you know, my dad, he'd love to come. He, my grandfather, my father, you know, something good's going on. They're like, oh, he'd love to come down from heaven and see this. No, he wouldn't. I don't care what it is. Look, y'all know, I'm a huge UVA fan. If I die and I wake up in heaven and UVA is about to win the national championship in football, I don't care. I'm not coming back to see it. Why? Because in heaven, they always are national champs. Amen? It's always true. Because he goes, look, you're dead. You're dead. Dead people don't care about what happens on earth. Dead people don't care about the things of earth. They care about heaven. They care about God. They care about his kingdom. So we should no longer look to those earthly things for help. When Christ died and we accepted his salvation, all our attempts at self-salvation and self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction died with him. Here's what Paul's telling us. Nothing on earth can make your life work. We're not to look to them. We're not to seek after them. We're not to chase after them. We are to look to Christ. As his children, we possess the one who is himself the fullness of God. He now lives inside of us. He showed the ultimate love on the cross. He conquered the enemy when he rose from the dead and now he sits at the ultimate place of power and authority and as a child of God we have Christ and that's all we need we don't need anything else so we shouldn't be seeking all these things Jesus plus nothing equals everything that's the message of Colossians that's what Paul is telling us in this book now the particular issues that the Colossian believers struggled with are different than what we struggle with today. They were really superstitious, and that caused them to have a Jesus and mentality. Now, today, most of us aren't superstitious like they are. We don't believe in other deities and other gods we have to seek after. Maybe we're not even as religious as them, or we think, well, we've got to follow these rules and, and these regulations and these things that people say to, to prove or to earn our salvation. So it may not be as superstitious as them. We may not be as religious as them, but we still have a Jesus and mentality. We tend to think that to, to make life work, to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be secure, we need things in addition to Jesus. We don't reject Jesus. He's important to us. We, we think he's vital. We rely on him for our eternal salvation, but we use other things for other areas. We got to have Jesus, but we also got to have a family and got to have hobbies and got to have entertainment and got to have a career and got to have a good job and got to have a secure retirement and got to have good health insurance. And so we have to have Jesus, but we also got to have these other things. 
Paul would, and he is, saying the same thing to us. Jesus is enough. He is all you need, and if you have him, you have everything. As Christians, the thought of having multiple gods seems ridiculous. We would never have different gods for different needs like some religions do, like the Hindu religion where they have thousands of gods and each god has a different part of your life that they're supposed to help with. So you've got this god for your, for your finances and you've got this god for your marriage and you've got this god for your health and you've got this god for good children, which, you know, we lost that god years ago because look at our kids. And so you've got all these different gods for all these different things and as believers in Christ, we would never think that. We would never apply to that thinking. We have a one God and one priority. But we have different, you know, so we, we think, we understand that different gods are wrong, but we have different priorities in our life. And we think, I got one God, but a lot of priorities, and that's fine. But to Christ, having multiple gods and multiple priorities are the same thing. We serve one God, and He is to be the priority. He is to be preeminent in our life. He comes first. Living for Him comes first. Fulfilling His mission comes first. Serving Him comes first. Obeying Him comes first. When He is in the proper place of preeminence in our life, everything else falls into place. And then we find true joy and true fulfillment. As we saw last week, when Christ is in his proper place of preeminence, and he's the, not, not the most important thing that we have to focus on, he is what we focus on, then we can even find joy in sacrificing for his kingdom. The Colossians, as we tend to do, they thought of their lives in terms of buckets. That's why I have my Jesus bucket here. They had their Jesus bucket. It's a big bucket. It's the biggest bucket. They have their Jesus bucket. We have our Jesus bucket, but we have other buckets as well. We have our provision bucket. We have to worry about that bucket too. We have our protection budget. We have a uh, bucket. We have to worry about that. You see where I'm going? 40 and up there. We have our protection bucket. We have our satisfaction bucket. So we have our Jesus bucket, it's the biggest bucket, it's the first bucket, but we have these other buckets as well. We have our, our joy bucket, so we got to make sure we're taking care of our joy bucket. We have our fulfillment bucket, we got to make sure we're taking care of that bucket as well. We have our marriage bucket, we got to take care of it. We have our health bucket, and I'm running out of places for my bucket. We have our family bucket and our security bucket. We have all these buckets, Jesus is the biggest bucket. He's the first bucket. He's the most important bucket. But we have all these other buckets we have to deal with as well. And we'll shift around. We'll put, we'll put them in different places. But as long as Jesus stays here, we're fine. That's what we think. But here's the problem. This is most of our Jesus bucket. And it goes way back here where no one else cares. So we, we have a Jesus bucket, but it's way here at the end can't really see if it, if it gets not taken care of, who cares? So we have our Jesus bucket, but it's usually the smallest, most insignificant, last place in our life. Here's the thing. This is wrong. We know that, right? 
We know having the smallest bucket is Jesus. We know that's wrong. But so is this. See, it's not we have Jesus' bucket. He's the biggest bucket. He's the most important bucket. He's the bucket I spend the most time on. And then I got these other buckets. See, we're supposed to find our satisfaction in Jesus. We find our, our family in Jesus. We find our, our protection in Jesus. We find protection for our health in Jesus. Our marriage. How are we going to have a good marriage? By in Jesus. We find our fulfillment in Jesus. We find our joy in Jesus. We find our security in Jesus. Our provision is in Jesus. Everything else is to go in this bucket. And then, you know what we have to worry about? This bucket. And we worry about this bucket. And only this bucket, everything else takes care of itself. But that's not how we live our life. We live our life with all of our other buckets, and we'll shuffle our buckets around because maybe we got to do our security bucket and our provision buckets a little bit later, and our family bucket. Our marriage is struggling, so we've got to move our family bucket up a little bit. And what happens is we have all these different buckets. Jesus is always the last and always the smallest. Paul is telling us, that Jesus is the whole bucket. Everything we need is found in him. Put him in his proper place of not being the biggest of some buckets, but being the only bucket. Put him in his proper place, and he takes care of everything else. Now, we've said for the last several weeks in, in, in our culture, our, our Jesus and mentality tends to uh, show itself mostly in our relation to money. There's a book I read years ago called God and Money. It was written by some Harvard Business School graduates who, while they were in school, they became believers. And they started re-looking at how they dealt with money and their relationship to money. And they talked about how people think about money. And in this room, every one of us has one of three relationships with money. And look, I know I'm talking about money here, but this applies to any area. This applies to your time. This applies to how you handle the talents God has given you. This applies to all the things that we deal with that God has given us that we are to use for his kingdom. We all have one of three relationships with these things. I'm going to tell you these relationships and explain them. And I want you to see which one applies to you or your spouse. If it applies to your spouse, point them out and we'll all laugh. Amen? Here's the first one. The first relationship is a spender. These people believe money's greatest value is in adding enjoyment to today. They typically spend their money as soon as they get it because they want the most enjoyment right now. I got the money now. I'm going to spend the money now. I'm going to enjoy the money now. How many of y'all are spenders? Connor, raise your hand. Connor and Parker, both of you raise your hands. Connor, you know, I mow my neighbor's yard and she pays me 50 bucks a week to mow her grass. And Connor, I make him help me because it makes me get done a lot faster. Uh, I don't like doing it. And it teaches him how to, how to make a living, how to work. You know, he works, he earns some cash. And so every time he'll mow the grass, I'll usually mow the perimeter. I'll do the weed eating, which I really do hate, but I haven't taught him to weed eat yet. So I'll do the trimming and she'll give me 50 bucks. I'll usually give him 30. Soon as I give him that money, you know what he does? Can you buy me a gift card? 
Why? I want to buy a video game. I want to buy a skin. I don't, I don't know what a skin is, but he's got a bunch of them. He wants to buy, as soon as he gets it, he spends it. Parker's the same way. He gets his paycheck on Thursday. On Friday, he's broke. He just, he's got to spend his money. He, and every time I'm like, what did you spend your money on? Well, I saw this cool knife on Amazon I had to buy. He's got knives everywhere. I don't know, he doesn't use them, but he's got them. I'm a spender. I get my money, I want to spend it too. On, not just not video games or knives, but usually, you know, food or something. <laughs> nice, you know, something good and valuable. But money to the spender is about adding pleasure to the moment. They maximize their value for today. But there's also, number two, there's the saver. The saver is someone who thinks that money's greatest value is providing security for tomorrow. Now, how many of you think you are savers? Daryl's a saver. I believe Daryl's a saver. So we got some savers there. How many of y'all want to be savers? We all want to be a saver, but most of us aren't savers. Savers, they say money, I get money today, but the greatest value is giving me security for tomorrow. So they, they limit their consumption today, and they focus on increased wealth accumulation over time. They take the philosophy of delayed satisfaction over immediate satisfaction. Now, spenders, they view money as a tool for today, and savers view money as a tool for security and flexibility for tomorrow. Most of us fall into one of those two categories. And most of us, we want to be savers, but we're, but we're usually spenders. And look, just because you're a spender doesn't mean you can save. There are spenders who do manage to save some. And just because you're a saver doesn't mean you can't spend some and enjoy some today. You can blow some money every once in a while, but you're still focused on saving. But typically, we either spend or save. And that's what we think is the best. We think saving is the best because that's what Dave Ramsey tells us. Saving is the best. Don't spend your money now. Save and protect it for the future because you're going to retire. You're gonna, you know, I, you know I, I get Dave Ramsey, he's going to have a couple million dollars in the bank before he retires, and he's going to die the day before he does. Then what good is it? But we say, Dave Ramsey says, i got to save. So we want to be savers. But there's another relationship to money, and this is the relationship that puts God in his proper place it is how God wants us to relate to him. The third relationship is that of a steward. These people, they see money as a temporary gift from God to be used for the purpose of building his kingdom. Yeah, they'll use their money to provide for their needs. They pay their house payments, they buy a car, they buy food, they buy groceries, they buy, they buy clothes. They provide for their needs. They save some for the future. They're not, they're not foolish. And the Bible says that the wise person, the ant, saves up for the future. So they, they spend some for their needs, maybe even some enjoyment. They, they save some for the future, but they intentionally limit both consumption and wealth building to focus on giving the most they can today to bless others through building the kingdom of God. And this applies not just to money, but to their time too. And look, time is what most of us 
Because, you know, I don't cling to money because I don't have any. But I, I cling to my time. You know, someone said, calls me and says, hey, what are you doing Saturday? Why? <laughs> are you moving? Because if you're moving, I'm busy. <laughs> and that's why we, we like to cling to our time. And we like to cling to our finances. We like to cling to our talents. And we, we cling to these things. But that's why Paul says in verse 2, he says, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. We are not to look at money or time or talent as a means of satisfaction today like the spender or a means of security for the future like the savior because like the saver because Jesus provides both for his children. Jesus provides satisfaction. Jesus provides security for his children. So we're not to look to other means to fulfill those things. Instead, we are to look at money as a temporary tool given to us by God for his purpose and for his kingdom. That applies to our time. That applies to our talents. Time is given by God as a gift to be used pursuing him and building his kingdom. Our talents are a gift from God given to us for us to use to help others pursue God, help him build his kingdom. Now, yes, use your time, your talent, and your money for yourself, son. Bible talks about taking time for yourself. We all need a, a Sabbath rest. I have no problem with people taking vacations in two weeks. I'm taking a week off. I'm going to be in Florida. So you're doing what? Florida stuff, which involves snorkeling and laying on the beach, doing nothing. And I deserve that. And so do you. We need time to relax and refresh and rebuild but we also need to make sure that we're using the other time we have to build his kingdom, pursue a relationship with him. We gotta, you got to pay your bills. I'm not saying that every time you get paid, send you 100% of your paycheck to the church because then you're going to starve to death. Now, Harper can help you with that, but you're not going to have a home and I can't help you with that. So, yeah, provide for your family. But instead of saying, hey, I've got all my paycheck, I'm going to do all, we're going to, I'm going to spend all of it to have fun, or I've got all my paycheck, I'm going to save all of it so later on we can have some fun. Say, okay, I've got this, I've paid my bills, I'm going to have some fun, I'm going to save, but what can I eliminate? What can I forego today so I can give the most I possibly can to God's kingdom? Same with your time. Okay, I've got a week. I've got seven days. Got to go to work five of those days, five or six of those days. Got to spend time with my family. Got to, got to do certain things. Got to do chores around the house. Got to mow the grass. Got to do these things. But what can, how can I make sure that I'm spending the majority of my time that I have left pursuing God and building his kingdom? My talents, I've got these talents. I've got to use them to get a job. But how can I use them to build his kingdom? How can I use them for him and for his glory? See the gifts that God has given you his your time, your talent, and your treasure as tools given to you by God that we are to steward for him. We're not to spend them. We're not to save them. We're to use them for his kingdom. Now, all that is introduction. It's 11.55. We're going to be out in a minute. My last couple pages are the point, but I don't have that many. I've got one point. We're going to look at one point and we're going to unpack it. So what's the point? Paul says, because of all this we've talked about, 
Paul says we are to live like Jesus rules all and eternity Israel. I just blew your minds, didn't I? None of y'all knew that. Of course we did. That's not a shocking statement to anybody. I say, Jesus rules everything. All believers say, amen. We know it. Eternity is real. Nobody's here going, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean eternity, heaven's real? Hell's real? I thought it was just like a metaphor. You mean I'm going to live like forever, like forever, ever? Yeah, we know this. We know that heaven, that eternity is real. We know that Jesus rules all. The problem isn't that we don't know it to be true. The problem is we don't live like it is. We don't live like eternity matters. We don't live like Jesus rules everything. We forget about these truths. And forgetfulness of these truths, Jesus says, is what makes us go wrong in how we handle the gifts that he has given us. There, there are two parables in the New Testament that Jesus told to drive home these truths. And the first one is in Luke chapter 12. And Jesus, he, he's dealing with a couple guys who have having a dispute over money and whose lives are too wrapped up in how much they have. So look in your Bibles in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Verse number 15. <clears throat> Let me get there. Luke 12, verse 15. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not of the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build up greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So here's what Jesus is saying to this guy who he had a bumper crop. He goes, man, I got more than I could ever deal with. I could ever, I could ever get rid of. I'm, I'm set for life. So I'm going to tear down my barns, build bigger barns, store it all up, and I'm just going to live the easy life forever. And Jesus says, what's, what good is all that, all that money? What good is all that saving if you enter eternity with nothing? What good's all that, that cash if you die and go to hell. Or for the believer, what good is all that retirement fund if when you die and go to heaven, you've done nothing for the kingdom of God? Sure, you got heaven, but is that all we really want? We just want to live forever with Jesus. We don't want to hear, well done now, good and faithful servant. We want to see people that we've helped or we've led to Christ. Set your mind on things above. Then there's a second parable. It's from Luke chapter 16, and instead of reading it to you, I'm going to retell it to you in my, my own words. This is the Sean International Version, all right? There's a rich guy. He works for an accounts manager. The boss came to him and says, uh, you know what? You've been kind of slacking off. You've been kind of shady, so you're fired. You've got two weeks' notice, and then you're out of here. Most bosses, when they fire you, don't give you two weeks' notice. They fire you, you're out. But he goes, you've got two weeks' notice, you're fired, get out of here. So the guy, he's starting to freak out because he's like, well, the guy I work for, you know, I just got fired. 
and he's kind of a jerk, and so everybody he's, he's done business with, he's kind of done them wrong, and I've been the one to have to, you know, do this for him, so now all the people who could possibly be my boss in the area, they hate me because they hate him, and I'm the, I'm the one that he used to do these things, so I've got to come up with a plan, so here's what he does. He goes to all of his boss's debtors, says, how much do you owe? You know, one guy says, well, I owe $100,000. He goes, great, give me $25,000, we'll call it even. Does it to everybody. Yo, I owe fifty thousand. Good. Give me twenty-five thousand. We'll call it a day. How a million? Good. Give me two hundred fifty thousand. We'll call it. And so he goes to all of his boss's debtors and he cuts their debts in, in a quarter or half and he collects all this cash. And so what he's done here is he's gotten some cash for his boss who was having trouble collecting these debts. But he's also made good with all these other people who could be his boss so that when, if he does get fired and he goes in and says, hey, can I get a job? Remember, I cut your debt in half. So he's kind of, he's, he's made his boss a little bit happy. He's made these debtors very happy. And now it, it looks to me, that seems like a shady thing to do. Going behind your boss's back, doing that without his permission, seems like a shady thing to do. But look what Jesus says about it in Luke chapter 16, verse 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward. He, and he calls him unjust. He doesn't say, I'm going to commend this wise, righteous. He goes, no, he's an unjust steward, but dude did pretty good. He commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. So here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying that he is wise because he used an opportunity he knew was ending for the future. That's what we are supposed to do with the gifts of God. We are to use the gifts God has given us in light of eternity. Here's something we all know, but we may not realize it right now. Your life is ending and it's not going to be long. Even if you live a hundred years in the terms of eternity, it's nothing. That's, it's gone. We don't have forever on this earth to serve Christ. We don't have forever on this earth to share the gospel. We don't have forever on this earth to build his kingdom and disciple believers. We are to live our life with the gifts God has given us knowing this life is ending so I better use what he gives me to help to, to for eternity later. If we know eternity is real and it's coming, isn't it wise to leverage what we have here for our coming permanent reality? You know, it's foolish to do otherwise. To do otherwise, to live your life for only today, and to say, I'm gonna, I've got this cash, I've got this time, I've got this time, I'm going to use it for me, I'm going to use it to build my kingdom, I'm going to use it to build my wealth, I'm going to use it to make myself happy. It's like getting a room at the Holiday Inn and renovating it. Putting in a jacuzzi tub, stainless steel refrigerator, marble countertops. Man, you make that room look awesome. But you're, you're there for a couple days. So you wasted your money. You wasted your effort. Why invest in something where you are only for a little while? So set your minds on things, of earth, on things above, not on things of the earth. Look at your time. Look at your talent. 
look at your treasure, and decide what really lasts. Is it going to matter 100 years from now how much time you spent restoring a classic car? Is it going to matter 100 years from now how much golf you played or how good your score got? Is it going to matter 100 years from now how many football games you watched? There's nothing wrong with any of that. But that shouldn't be our focus. That shouldn't be our priority. Is it going to matter in 1,000 years what type of car you drove or how big your house was or how big your retirement account was? You can have a huge retirement account, and when you die, you know who cares? Your spouse and your kids who are going to get that money you work so hard for, you save so hard for. It doesn't matter to you. You're dead. So what does it matter now? Live your life now as if Jesus rules all and eternity is real because he does and it is. Only when life to live will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. There are only two things that are truly eternal. The kingdom of God and the souls of men. Invest your life in those things. There's a saying that was popular a couple years ago. I don't know if it's still popular now. I'm not that hip, but it's YOLO. Is YOLO still hip? No? Okay, great. <laughs> you know what YOLO is? You only live once. That's the stupidest saying in the world. Yes, you only have one life, but it's eternal. The life you have is eternal. So make your life count for eternity. Look, that starts with salvation. If you die without Christ, you are going to live for eternity in a very real place called hell. And hell is bad. There's fire. There's torment. There's, there's pain and suffering. But the worst thing about hell is you will never be in the presence of God. Or you'll live in heaven. And heaven's great. Man, there's walls of jasper. I know it's the new heaven, not the one now. But you know what I mean? There's gates of pearl. There's, there's, there's crystal rivers. There's streets of gold. There's, oh, there's mansions we get. Never says that. But anyway, let's go with it. There's mansions up there. But you know what makes heaven so great? Jesus is there. And you get to spend eternity in fellowship with him. So make sure, first of all, that your soul is going to spend eternity in heaven with God. Make sure you understand that you were a sinner. An enemy of God, condemned to hell, and helpless and helpless to do anything on your own. But he loved you so much, he came down. He took on of a human. He became a baby and lived a perfect life. He perfectly fulfilled the law because you never could. He died on the cross for your sins. He didn't execute him for his sins. It was your sins. He was sinless. But as he hung on that cross, God the Father placed your sins on him and poured the wrath of God out on every sin ever committed. And he died in your place and he was buried but he rose again three days later to redeem you to God the Father and all you have to do to accept his gift of salvation is believe believe you are a sinner believe you are hopeless and helplessly lost believe he came and lived for you what you could not do he died in your place and rose again and put your faith and trust in that and you become a child of God once you've got that taken care of, make sure you're living the rest of your life for eternity too. Paul says to the church at Colossae, you have a choice to make. 
You can live your life as if Jesus rules all and eternity is real. Or you can live as if you're sufficient to save yourself and live forever. Look what he says in verse, chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, doesn't say when Christ, who's a big part of our life, when Christ, who is important to our life, when Christ, who is our top, when Christ, who is our biggest bucket in our life. No, it says when Christ, who is our life. When Christ, who is our only bucket, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Jesus doesn't just give us life. He is our life. He endures forever. Jesus rules all and eternity is real. If you have him, you have it all. So we have a choice to make today. You have to choose. What is your choice? What is your source of life? Is it what you can provide for yourself? Is it what you can do for yourself? Or is it something that's going to last forever? Faith is living like Jesus is real and Jesus rules all and eternity is real. You know, Martin Luther said this, he goes, there are three conversions a person needs to experience. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. It starts with knowing Jesus as God sent to save you. It moves to loving him and trusting him, and it finishes by using your time, your talent, and your treasure in line with the truth that Jesus rules everything and eternity is real. But we have to choose to live this way. The worst thing you can do is be caught in the middle and try to do both. You ever seen someone try to get out of a rowboat onto a dock and they keep one leg on the boat and one leg on the dock? You know what happens? They get wet. They end up doing a split and they get wet. Why? Because you can't serve two masters. You can't say, Jesus is everything, but I'm going to do it all myself. You got to pick. Get on the dock, get in the boat. Look forward into eternity and see who rules. In eternity, your life isn't judged by how much money you earned. Your, love is, your life isn't judged by how great you were at your favorite hobby or how much you vacationed. It's judged by what you did for and with Jesus. Whether you lived out His will, whether you pleased Him, whether you stewarded His gifts for Him. Put away your trust in earthly things and make life, that, the things that make life work. Set your mind on Christ, put Him first, and let Him take care of everything else. Let's stand together this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we